Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness. Thank You for a time where we can consider newness, Lord, the new life that You give, the new creation that You are establishing, Your mercies that are new every morning. May they encourage us. May they draw us to You. Open our hearts, Lord, that we may humble ourselves before the majesty and truth of Your Word. Be with us. Give us wisdom to understand and to apply it's to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's really, really good to see you. Good to be back uh, from our little jaunt out to, to North Las Vegas. I can assure you no shenanigans took place. Um, just a wonderful time to spend with my family and um, trust you were in good hands. We are going to continue our study this morning, a little mini-study meant to bring grace and encouragement to your hearts from the book of 1 John. So if you are not there already, please turn there, 1 John chapter 2. Please follow along as I read. Am I on, Brian? We good? Okay, thank you. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 is going to be our text. Uh, Draw your attention especially to verses 3 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. We have entitled this study, Rest in Christ for Redeemed Sinners. We are the redeemed sinners in question. And the encouragement that John gets to in this text is primarily for Christians. It is to encourage those who claim Christ and seeks, among other things, to answer how the Christian is to chart a path knowing that while he is indeed a new creation in Christ, he still wrestles with indwelling sin. That is the reality familiar to every Christian across the age. While we have been delivered, certainly and historically, from the penalty of sin, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our present battle is what we call a battle against the power of sin, which in Christ we have sure victory. But in this body of flesh, we still know the battle against it is real. We battle temptation daily. We pursue godliness, Lord willing, with with great deliberation, with great intention, with great resolution and with great trust that the Holy Spirit will continue to give us everything we need to walk with God, especially in times like these. And so it's clear that verses 1 through 6 in this chapter not only offer great comfort and encouragement for believers who are in this lifelong battle against sin and unrighteousness, but it charts one of the clearest paths we have in the New Testament for the believer in his struggle against unrighteousness 
and his pursuit of godliness. So we have gone the last two Lord's Days covering the, the first two primary points, and there are three in all. The first was this. Lean on Christ, your support. And this is verse 1, where it emphasizes Christ's high priestly work on our behalf. We lean on Him. We cast all our cares on Him, knowing that He cares for us. Whenever our words, thoughts, or deeds are unrighteous, we can take heart that one who never fails and never will fail to be righteous stands with us as our representative and our encouragement. So when we come to the throne of grace, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus. He is our priest, and a faithful priest he remains. The second one was this, and this is verse 2. Look to Christ, your Savior. Look to Christ, your Savior. And it says this, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And one of the main things that we pointed out in this passage that I think is worth repeating is that the verse 2 emphasizes Christ, emphasizes Christ as the one making propitiation. The focus is on Him, He Himself, in that He is the only one available to save. And so we look to Him and only Him. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I think the comfort here for the redeemed sinner is obvious that Christ, the one who is our great high priest, is also the same person who by his work on the cross brings satisfaction to the justice of God. We find for the unbeliever that they shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But those who trust in Christ alone find themselves in the position of favor. We find ourselves enjoying all the blessings of God's love and grace given to us through Christ. And so Jesus Christ, this righteous one, this righteous high priest, became a righteous sacrifice so that we who are in Him can stand righteous before a holy God without shame, without hesitation. So the key here is that we never have to despair even at the presence of indwelling sin. Yes, once we have an accurate theological vision of what exactly sin is, there is there is something to it that should horrify us. The gospel brings to light the absolute ugliness and debilitating nature of sin. In fact, without Christ, we would have every reason to despair of life. And yet, because of his work, we have nothing to despair of because nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we stand under this magnificent truth that there is nothing that we could do apart from Christ to satisfy the justice of God, nor is there anything you can do now. This rest is a continual rest. We've, we've characterized this, especially in light of the Christmas season, but the gifts given here, are they keep on giving. They are perpetual in their benefit, even though some of these events are once for all. But this rest is continual It is a rest in Christ's high priestly work in addition to the final, total, and eternal satisfaction of God achieved through the work of Christ on the cross. So we come to this final portion of the text. And one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of is that so far in the text itself, we have not been told to do anything. That's very key to understanding this text as we move forward in it. 
We have not been told to do anything. What John is doing, and this is where we have to really anchor our hearts and minds, John is simply expressing the reality of the situation. This is what is true for you in Christ. This is the power of grace on display. This is what has been done for you and continues to be done for you as you rest in Him. You have a priest. You have propitiation. You are not lacking in anything. See, those two fundamental truths of the Christian life provide the very basis, foundation, and provision of what is going to come in verses 3-6. through And so this is where we now come to the third and final overarching point of this rest in Christ. It is simply this. Now we live for Christ. Live for Christ your standard. Live for Christ your standard. So this is what we could call the blessed reality that flows from the previous two, and yet in here I think is most of our instruction. What do we do in light of the fact that we have propitiation? What do we do in light of the fact that God's judgment is satisfied against us? What do we do in light of the fact that we have a high priest that we do not stand before the throne of grace alone and unrepresented? Even though we are justified, we still require representation. Even as a Christian, don't you dare speak on your own behalf. Don't you dare speak on in light of your own righteousness and accomplishments. Stand in light of what Christ has done. That is, that is so key to abiding by this, this third exhortation here. Because verses 3 through 6, and this sort of marks the transition in, the, in, in, in the, the flow of the text. Verses 3 through 6, if you want to pay attention there, describe the lifelong obligations a believer in Jesus has toward the grace that is pulled out from verses 1 and 2. And I think this guards us from something that is very key to the Christian life is often we want to skip straight to the practical without grounding ourselves in the very things that make it possible. I mean, we don't want to be, we we do want to be doers of the word, but there is no doing without hearing. And of course, we understand if we hear without doing, we delude ourselves, but there is no doing without hearing. We can't act upon what we do not know. That is why the Word of God reveals everything we need to know to act upon it and to walk with God in light of His grace and provision. So we don't want to skip past the first two. So until Christ is your priest and your propitiation, you will find it a fool's errand to live for Christ your standard. You'll either end up one of two things, at least, and some in between, but you will either end up a self-righteous legalist or you will despair for all always falling short of the standard. Only through faith in Christ and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit are we suited to this task of living for Him. And what a monumental privilege. We've talked about privilege. Do not underestimate the privilege that you have been offered through your life in Christ. Use whatever privilege you have to the glory of God. Not for yourself, not for your own promotion, not for your own pride, but so that the kingdom of God is advanced. Whatever benefit you may have, exploit it, plunder it for His glory. We live for Him. So I want to break this down into three mini-points in terms of living for Christ our standard. And the first one is this. This standard is honored by obedience. This standard is honored by obedience. Write that down and look with me at verse 3. It says this. By this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. By this. And then he's going to 
expound upon what that is. This is the way as opposed to many other ways. Now remember the context of 1 John. He's dealing with a number of issues in the church, among the people of God. He's offering a polemic against people who claim to be a part of the church, who claim to be Christians, who claim to know Him, who claim to love Him, who may claim any number of things to prove that they truly know God, that they have fellowship with Him. See, there's nothing new under the sun. The same big talkers, empty talkers, who afflicted the people of John's day continue to afflict the church of Christ today. Where it's just words. No, no, no life transformation, no true faith, no obedience, no genuine affection for Christ, no genuine love for His Word, just words. Paul warns, Titus and Timothy of the very same things, very same troubling things, that you have people out there who are peddling myths, old wives' tales as he calls them. And though they talk a a big game, they really have no idea what they're talking about. Sometimes they're just making stuff up on the fly, claiming private revelation, right? Paul, Paul talks to the Colossians about people who are boasting about the things that they have allegedly seen. And they use those things to claim authority. And the person who is truly, in truth, as John will characterize, experienced fellowship with Christ and the saving power of the gospel will always point to Christ as the authority, the absolute and final authority. He will not use the gospel as a basis to gather himself up a multitude of followers so that he can be a little cult leader, so that they can do what he says. The standard is honored by obedience. And here's how we know. Here's how we know we know him. And this is something, this is, this is a great boast of the Christian. This is a way which we boast in the Lord. We can claim that we know things. Christians know things. That is hugely offensive in today's society to claim that you have knowledge, especially knowledge of the holy, knowledge of the divine. And the joy for the Christian is that we do. We not only know about God, we know him. We walk in fellowship with him. We are united in Christ the Son of God. What amazing position we are in. And we can claim that. We can claim that boldly. Yes, I know the true and living God. I am united to Him. I fellowship with Him. I know Him. He knows me. I am His child. I am His sheep. And I follow Him. So you see John making this important connection between obedience and knowledge. By this we know that we have come to know Him. Right? Many reasons, many many evidences may be offered, but this is the one that the Word of God offers to us. I have come to know Him and does not, or sorry, has come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So what is the demonstration here that we know Him? Again, know Him deeply, know Him intimately. It's a very specific and important word here for knowledge. It refers to a knowledge that is deep and abiding. One, a, knowledge, a knowledge by experience, among other things. That we know God in a true and new and living way in Christ. And that is a big claim. That is a big claim. It kind of walks hand in hand with, 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 with claiming to know what God says. Many false prophets from the Old Testament times were rebuked for this. You say, thus saith the Lord, when I have not spoken. <laughs> Misrepresenting Him. So we have the same thing today. I have a word from the Lord. This claim of This claim of knowing what God says walks hand in hand with claiming to know God Himself. 
So make sure your claim is one that is made in truth. But how do we know? And he simply says this. This is how we know. If we keep his commandments. And of course, John is not supporting a works-based religion here. He's not saying, I'm saved because I do what is right. I'm saved or I'm righteous because I obey him. No, it's simply this is the inevitable outflow of true saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will keep his commandments. And that is how we know we know him. Even Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good deeds, good works. And then what's the, what's, what's the anticipated result? That they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, good works, keeping the commandments of God, they have a very important place in the life of the Christian because they point to the reality of the work of the Spirit. Remember, if Christ has propitiated for you, if He is your great high priest, you will, you must, but you will keep His commandments. We see this as an expression even of His love. In 1 John 5.3, we read this. It's one of the, 1 John is one of those books where it's like, the first half interprets the back half and the back half interprets the opening half. But 1 John 5.3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And I think it's popular in today's Christianity, especially here in the United States, to take to really remove the emphasis from obedience. I think we mistakenly characterize it as legalistic. Any kind of demand to walk with God, any kind of call to repentance, any kind of call to, to live righteously is sometimes written off as legalist or legalistic or you're, you're heaping on burdens. When right here we read his commandments are not burdensome. But commandments they remain. These commandments are his standard. And we, and we should delight in them. So the question becomes, what are these commandments in view? And I think the simple answer is this. I mean, you could, I don't think John's point here is to go through the entirety of the Old Testament and look at all of the 613 laws and point and figure out which ones apply, how they do or don't. But I think his point is rather a basic one, and I think you can link this, find this very theme in 1 John. And it's one that is threaded throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, finding its way specifically and explicitly here. And that is love. That is love. Even Jesus says, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, we all love ourselves. I think we love ourselves a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. We really like ourselves. And a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of pretension behind saying, oh, I just hate myself. I'm such a miserable sinner. I mean, get off your high horse, you know. It's, uh, we, we, we love ourselves pretty fiercely. And that is, and that is a very helpful and basic guide for how we are to love others. We look out for their needs, right? We love one another. We seek their highest good, both spiritually and materially. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is not stop, friends. This is very important. This is not stop or terminate with the Old Testament. This standard continues into the new. Jesus says it. Paul says it. In fact, here you have this. Romans 13.8, Oh, nothing 
to one another except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. If you love your neighbor, you're basically doing all that God requires. If you love, I mean, of course, we have to understand what is undergirding that love and how we define that love. But if you love, you're basically doing what the law requires of you, what God requires of you. You are living consistently by that standard, which is love. For this, verse 9 of Romans 13, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, like, there's anything else. It's also covered or sustained by this very principle, a binding principle. It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong or does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Why? Because love seeks the highest good of another, seeks the highest good of God. And I'll explain that because we want to understand love. And we always stop and explain what love is. Love is the pursuit of the highest good of another, right? Love is, love is basically helping someone become like Jesus, especially a fellow Christian. Now, love is also, concerning our relationship to God, love is also seeking God's highest good. What is God's highest good? It's that he is loved and worshipped and adored and glorified. That's the highest good of God. Is that he is, he is on display to put all of his goodness and perfections on display to proclaim him faithfully. It is to call one to love and desire and treasure God as he ought to be. The highest good of God is that he is glorified. And when we truly love God, we pursue that. And if we love one another, we also point the other person to that most important priority. We keep his commandments. We love God. We love our neighbor. That is the, that is the summing up of the OT law, but it's also the summing up of what is called by Paul in the New Testament, the law of Christ. That is the law of the king. Same, same law. I think the only, the only thing that is added is found in the book of John where we are, where, where Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. See, now we have a, a, a new example put forth by Christ, to love one another sacrificially. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay, lay, lay down his life for his friends. So we love one another, we seek one another's highest good, but even at personal expense, even if it costs us our very lives, we are to love one another and so emulate the love that the Lord Jesus has for us. See, this is a good law. This is a law we can stand upon. This is a law we can uphold. Listen to James 2.8, if however you are fulfilling the royal law, there we go, the king's law, that is, who's the king? It's Jesus. The royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I love what he concludes here. You are doing well. <laughs> right? Don't let it go to your head, but you're doing well. You are living as you are supposed to live. It's also called the law of liberty, right? Not only this is the law of the king, this is a law of free people. This is a law that does not condemn. Know what, know what the law did apart from Christ. All it did was condemn us. We were under the laws. We were under the curse of the law. Now we can stand upon the law in grace and declare the gospel with power and authority. We don't see the law as something that is awkward or cumbersome or oppressive. 
We see it as a guide to the one who has been made free, who has been pronounced free in Christ. This is a good thing. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. We are free to keep His commandments. And we know this because the Holy Spirit gives us a new mind to hold every thought captive and obedient to Christ. He gives us new desires so that we obey God rather than man, so that we desire righteousness as opposed to unrighteousness. And of course, the Holy Spirit endows us with the very strength to persevere along a path of obedience. It's not this intermittent empowerment. The Holy Spirit permanently resides within us, giving us that strength. God's not going to get cheap or be miserly or cut us short where we most desperately need it. We need His Spirit. He gives us the power to obey so we don't have to look at Scripture and be overwhelmed or, or despair because we fall short. We know that He gives us the strength to obey His commands. That's why Paul can say with confidence in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example. Follow me as I follow Christ. Right? And this gives us great confidence. This gives us, 1 John is a book of assurance. It gives us great assurance. Keeping His commandments is evidence that we have come to know Him. And this, is, of course, is one of 21 uses of knowledge in the book of John. And knowledge is so important. But it's a knowledge that transforms. It is a knowledge that is, that is learned and obeyed and responded to. I think that's, that's, that's found in um, this word keep. Does not keep His commandments. Right? We want to keep His commandments. It doesn't just mean that we obey. It doesn't mean like God says something and we do it. There's an attitude that is linked to it. To keep, you know, think of, think of an old word for treasure. Something that you value. Something that you hold near to you. Something that you grasp and do not let go because it's so important. Something that you don't want to lose or cheapen. When we keep His commandments, we see His word as, as a treasure. As, as valuable, as, as indispensable. Something by which we can know God in a deeper way. See, obedience isn't drudgery, friends. It's a great opportunity to reflect the glory of Christ, not to obey by rote, not to, not to obey hypocritically, not to establish our own righteousness, not to draw near Him with our lips, yet our hearts far from Him. See, there is something about the human heart that follows through more readily concerning the things that it cherishes. And if we really, truly cherish Christ, if we cherish obedience, then keeping the commandments of God will not be the drudgery that it is so often portrayed as being. Oh, do I have to obey? Well, yes, you do. God's commands are God's commands. But more importantly, you get to obey because the Lord is disclosing His revelation to you. He's, he's telling you what he, he commands you to do. You are no longer walking in darkness. You have the light of the Word of God to guide you, to obey by faith. You're not walking in the dark anymore. You can't claim ignorance. But it should be something that we enjoy, that we delight in. Psalm 119.97, this is one of the greatest verses concerning the believer's relationship to the Word of God. It says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is, the med- it is my meditation all the day. How in the world does someone who's under the OT law delight in the law? Isn't the law only supposed to condemn? 
only if you are trying to establish your own righteousness. But if you trust in Christ, you have a righteousness not of your own. You can come to the law. You can come to every command of Scripture and know that you do not stand condemned and that you can delight in it because you know where it comes from. Like, this is from, this is from God. This is gold. This is treasure. I need to be in this constantly. I need to be sharing this with my kids, with my spouse constantly. If it is my meditation all the day long, it should be our household's meditation all the day long. I love your law. And the Christian can gladly say that. That we don't have to obey God half-heartedly, nor in despair or in confusion, or to gain His favor. We obey Him because we have His favor. And I certainly don't want our church to struggle with this. To struggle with the goodness of the commandments of God. To, to, to despair of the, the demand that is placed upon us. I think sometimes we so often emphasize the presence of grace, we forget the power of grace. The same grace that saves you is the grace that calls you to obey, is the grace that enables you to obey. That is it. It's all of grace. Sometimes we focus on obedience and it's like keeping the commandments of God. We can mistakenly think that this efficiency of the work of Christ is somehow being undermined. We mistakenly think that. Oh, we talk about commandments, talk about obedience. Oh, we're undermining grace. The gospel is being minimized. Listen to this. Obedience does not minimize the gospel. It magnifies it. It shows the gospel at work. It shows that the gospel transforms. Likewise, obedience does not undermine the gospel. It underscores it. It's in the details. See, keeping the commandments of God... Knowing those commandments are a good and beneficial thing. So key. Now look what John says conversely. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. This person is not merely confused. This person is not merely deluded or self-deceived. They are a liar. They are misrepresenting God. They are misrepresenting the demands that accompany the gospel, that, that accompany our life in Christ, that are the inevitable outflow of Christ's imputed righteousness. I think we try to make that PC sometimes. I have come to know Him, and I do not keep His commandments. Right? I'm just misunderstood. I'm just, I'm just backsliding, you know, going through a dry spell right now. And not to be unjustly harsh on this person, but it is a denial. Unrighteousness is a denial of the power of the gospel because the gospel works righteousness. It says this, the truth is not in him. Say, well, what truth are we talking about? Say the truth about God, the truth concerning God, the truth concerning his purposes for creation, the truth concerning the gospel itself. See, those are truths. The truth of God is something that is not merely peripheral to the Christian life. It is internalized. Truth is internalized. I think that's why one of the main reasons we're called to memorize Scripture, right? We internalize it. So when faced with various situations, we know very quickly what to do. Why? Because we have studied Scripture. We have internalized the knowledge of God. We have come to love His commandments. And the person who denies this is a liar. And 
Ironically and tragically, this is the person who usually talks the loudest. This is often the person who claims that the Lord is doing great things in his life. You know, in this part of this new apostolic reformation that's going on, there's a claim to miracles, a claim to secret knowledge, a knowledge that is hidden from the rest of the ecclesiastical peasantry. Right? Come over here if you want to truly know things, they say. That you are missing out on something. That simple faith in Christ, a love for God, and a desire to grow in grace will only bring disappointment. You will not find satisfaction in Christ alone. And it's people like this it's a challenge we will always face, I think. The greatest challenge is that th- these are people who bring the greatest reproach upon the gospel. Because while they claim, I know him, and this knowledge, remember, is deep, abiding, experiential knowledge, their disobedience screams from the rooftop at least two things. The first is this, that one can claim Christ as king and still live as a rebel without consequence. I mean, what kind of king does not, what kind of just king does not punish evildoers? Secondly, that the gospel really makes no difference in one's life apart from intellectual agreement or assent. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the facts. I've heard them. Yeah, that's all good and well. Jesus dying, risen, yeah, coming again someday. Cool. I'm good with that. And then, of course, walk away and deny him by their lifestyle, where there's no, no delight in the word, no hunger. No hunger for the word, no transformed life. That person is denying the power of the gospel. They are truncating the gospel to a mere agreement with facts. Think about what we've already covered in verses one and two. Jesus is your support and Jesus is your savior. He is our advocate. You have an advocate with the father. You have propitiation for your sins. God is no longer angry with you. The realization, leave with this today, I beg you, the realization that ought to come to every Christian's mind when we actually dwell on those two things is how on earth can this actually fail? Right? If Christ is for me, who can be against me? How can this fail if I am truly in Christ? If I have him as my propitiation and high priest, why am I hell-bent on denying that reality? That person is a liar. The truth is not in them. And I want the truth to be in us. I want the gospel to take hold in our hearts to where we honor and obey the king. We trust in him alone. And that it truly transforms our lives. See, this this should bring clarity and confidence and joy. That God in Christ will accomplish everything. That he will not fail in the totality of his work of grace in our lives. Which is worse, that this person is deceiving, this person who is a liar, they're not merely not telling the truth, is that this person is speaking the devil's native language. The devil is a liar. When the devil lies, he speaks his own language. And the person who denies the work of the gospel is speaking the same language. He's calling God a liar too because he is denying the testimony that God has given concerning His own Son. And God's testimony concerning His own Son is, my Son is the only Savior. My Son will save to the uttermost. My Son is faithful. That's the worst thing. It's not only lying, that person is not only lying to the body of Christ, but they are 
lying concerning God. But there is hope. Look at verse 5, and here we come to the second sub-point. This standard is revealed in love. This will be the shortest point of the sermon, but check this out. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So once again, we have that word keep, this treasuring, right? This person who loves the word of God, who is, who is drawn near to him. He is saying, the love of God has truly been perfected. So you say, well, what is, what does the love of God mean? There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion as to what this means specifically, the love of God. I, I think the best understanding that we have for it in context is God's love for us, the love, the love that God gives, or we could even classify it as a love of the God kind, a love of the God variety, right? Speaking to its, speaking to its quality and, and substance. So the love of the God kind, the love that God has for us, has truly been perfected. So that is what keeping God's word shows. So he says that this love of God has truly been perfected. See, truly as opposed to lying, right? So that there is something here that is, that there is undeniable. It is, it is undeniable. It is verifiable. What this means is that it has attained its perfect its purpose. I don't think this perfected here speaks to so much to, to moral perfection as it does maturity. And all things pertaining to the Christian life, we want them to grow, we want them to strengthen, we want them to mature. Talk about the fruit of the Spirit, right? There's an idea that there's a, there is a fruit, it's on the branch, and it grows, becomes more colorful, becomes more edible, becomes more recognizable and more nourishing. All that is rolled up into, wrapped up into fruit, especially the fruit of love. And we want fruit to mature. And I think what that, that's what this is saying here. There is a maturity in view of this love so that when we consistently keep God's word, keep Christ's word, right, uphold the royal law by loving God and loving our neighbor, in us, the love of God has achieved its purpose. That's what I think it's talking about. In, in, in Sunday school, we talked about goals. The goals that we often establish every New Year's Day. And I think that's a good thing. However, we can re- refresh ourselves at the fountain of grace, review and renew our commitments and keep them. That is a good thing. But we also can't, we, we also have to look at every goal in light of God's goals and God's purposes. And God has very specific purposes of, for his love. And when we keep his commandments, when we are abiding in obedient fellowship with him, it demonstrates that love has done its work. And this truth confronts, I think, a very troubling aspect of our culture today, both within the church and without. And I find that so much of the church embraces this. And we have to be on guard against it. And that is love of God, that the love of God is attached from righteous behavior. See, the love of God continues to pursue our highest good. And it has truly done this when we walk in godliness. So think about your own view of love today. Does love mean being tolerant? Does love mean, have we truncated love to mere acceptance? Just kind of letting people have their way. Or do we have a view of love that confronts ungodliness and seeks the glory of Christ? Do we have a love in view where your love for something matches God's love for it? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? 
Do you despise unrighteousness? Do you love righteousness? What are your priorities? That will, that, that will clearly confirm what it is you love the most. But the love of God is always concerned with God's righteousness. And righteous living, obedience, is revealed in love. It demonstrates that love has achieved its purpose. We often don't think that. We don't often link love with righteousness. But this is clearly stated here. If we truly love God, it will, it will bring forth the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of keeping God's word, and it will continue. Thirdly, this standard is established by Christ. And, and this is one of the, um, this is one of the most difficult parts of this passage, but starting in verse five, by this, we know that we are in him. Okay, going off from mature love, right? The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So the claim of abiding with Christ is to be consistent with the evidence provided. You claim, I abide in him. Okay, not just know him, but I abide in him. I remain. This is a claim here that you walk with God. This goes back to this use of the word fellowship in the opening passage. In verse 3, we read, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This claim is another big one. It's another if-then statement. If you claim to abide in Him, that is, you are, you are living life in Christ, you are, you are in Him, you are united with Him, this is the very sphere of your life. The main thing of life. You claim you have fellowship. You claim that you have a common life with Christ. You ought yourself to walk in the same manner as He walked. Who's the He? It's Jesus. Whoa. Maybe we didn't realize the standard was that high. Maybe we didn't realize the call was that demanding. It can be a little intimidating. I have to be like Jesus? <laughs> of course we want to be like Jesus, but sometimes we forget what that looks like. But it says here clearly, we must walk even as He walks. So this is not an option. Claiming to abide in Christ does not, does not leave open the possibility of not walking as He walked. We must walk even as He walked. This is a perfect objective standard. It's close imitation. As one man says, he who declares his position is morally bound to act up to the declaration which he has made. It's a big call. We claim Christ. We must resemble him. Not optional. Jesus has some, some strong words, right, for those who do not obey, who do not walk as he walked. In our scripture reading this morning, we heard this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, right? Saying Lord twice denotes intimacy, denotes fellowship, denotes a deep abiding relationship. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and what? Not do what I say. Are we going to accuse Christ of being too harsh and being legalistic? No, the standard remains. Even though we are redeemed sinners, the standard of righteousness never went anywhere. The standard of righteousness did not deteriorate in any sense of the word. Jesus 
warns the crowd elsewhere. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. Only those who keep his word. Once again, it's not meritorious, but it is evidence, a key evidence of the fact that we are in Christ and demonstrates this transforming power of the gospel. But if we make this claim, we abide in him, we remain with him, we ought also to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, I don't want this to discourage us because yes, none of us will attain in this life perfect functional righteousness. I mean, it kind of undercuts the whole purpose at the beginning of this chapter. If anyone sins, and we will. So it's not to discourage us. The earthly life of Christ is meant to encourage us. We know that there is an established standard, an established pattern. And it's used to encourage us as believers not to discourage us by showing us something that is unattainable. We rest in the fact that this perfect righteousness has been attained and is imputed to us, that we are reckoned as having walked perfectly just as Christ has walked. So that's what matters the most. Not whether or not we've attained it, but that Christ has attained it so that this path becomes for us a path of grace and rest no matter where we fall short. We have one who has faithfully charted the course for us, and it is a clear path. And it may be hard, but it is clear, it is manicured, and it is well lit. (laughs) The path is not invisible to those who trust in Christ. Because we have his word, and his word is a light into our feet and a light lamp into our path. Lamp to our feet, light into our path. We have this encouragement as John goes on to say, we have overcome them because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The standard remains. God is with us. He gives us strength to walk righteously. And the path of righteousness does not diminish on account of our unrighteousness. Listen to Ephesians 2.2. Paul talks to them saying, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. See, that was then. That was your former course of life. That is not how Christ walked. And is now, you who are in Christ, to also not be the way which you walk. That was your past life. That was who you are apart from Christ. Now you are in him. So you go on to Ephesians 5.2 if you want to mark this down. He says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So now we are living sacrifices. But we walk in love, using Christ as our example of love. See, Christ always ex- he sets an abiding perfect example. And one more from 1 Peter 1, 14-16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Right? There's the command. But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That is, be, be devoted to the Lord in everything that you do, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Not just a command. It's, this is to be the reality for you who claim Christ. Be holy as I am holy. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. So, in landing our plane here, what are some ways Jesus exemplifies for us this walk, okay? So if we say we ought ourselves to walk in the same manner he walked, the question is, how did Jesus walk? What what footsteps did he leave for us to follow? A couple things to consider. And I think they're, they're pretty obvious, but I think we can rest in this. First of all, his, his walk was perfect. 
We think, well, yeah, obviously. He committed no sin, Peter says, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So yes, perfect in the sense of righteousness. So whenever we desire to imitate Christ, we know that he will never steer us wrong by an occasional bad example, an occasional slip-up. His way is always perfect, and so is his path. But I think there's another, there's another thing going on here in terms of perfection is what we just talked about. It's completion, right? We want the work of love to be complete and mature. But also we find that the work of Christ was mature. It, it's complete. It accomplished its mission. He died on the cross and rose again. And even now, in light of that, we face a task unfinished. The task found in the Great Commission to disciple the nations, not merely to make disciples of individuals, but that whole nations, whole countries, whole states will bow the knee to Christ in faith. And so, to that end, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth that seeks even the faith and obedience of every people group, without exception. Now, we should be a little more ambitious when it comes to the gospel. Not just in the trenches, right? Let's stand bold for it. Let's expect the Lord to do great things. As I've said before, let's, let's start acting like we've won. Because <laughs> Christ's victory is our victory. Secondly, Christ's walk was obedient. Again, expressed, expressed by the very pattern of this, of this text. What did the Lord say? I have come to do your will, O Lord. See, may, I, may our priority be the same as Christ, to obey the Father, to bring glory to Him, to reflect His excellencies and perfections. Walk obediently, claim Christ, and do what He says. Christ's walk was humble. He is one who humbled Himself to death, even the death of the cross. Christ humbled Himself, paid the penalty for our sins. But in His life, though the God-man he entrusted his work. He found his strength in the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we do the same. Fourthly, his walk was faithful. Oh, we want our, we are, we want our walk to be faithful. We don't want to, we don't want our walk to, to be marred by compromised and compromise and second guessing of, of God's faithfulness to us. We don't want to be double tongued. We don't want to be double minded. We don't want to say one thing and do another. If we regard Christ is truly faithful, so should we walk faithfully. Look at what we read in John 13.1. describes Jesus as having loved His own who were in the world, and He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. He did not falter. He is the perfect, the perfect embodiment of what it means to be faithful. And let me reiterate, this is, a, this is the standard, and it is perfect, but it is meant to encourage us. It's a clear path forward. And I, and I want to say this to you because some of you may be encouraged. 2022 was a messy year. Maybe you are anticipating much more messiness. Maybe you had a moral failing. Maybe you failed again and again, and you look back and you see constant failure. And maybe not just last year, but a few years. You want to give up. And I think that's why this passage is so encouraging. We have one who has walked that path of righteousness marked out for us to follow, who walked it faithfully, and who died for us, offered propitiation, and stands in as our high priest. Great quote here by uh, Andrew Sandlin to encourage you. 
One of Satan's most tragically successful ploys is to persuade Christians who have sinned and failed miserably to throw in the towel and to assume that if they've made a wreck of things, they might as well continue in the same direction since there's nothing left of their life to redeem. Have we felt that way before? I think we have. He goes on to say, this reasoning is 100% false. Listen to this. This is great. When we turn to the triune God, there is always something in life that can be redeemed. God is in the redemption business. So never forget this. It's never too late to do right. If you are in Christ, that's a call to repentance. Yes, you have failed. But there is one who has taken our failures upon himself. And that is Christ. And that is the great lesson. Look to him in all things. As our support, know that Jesus defends you. As Savior, know that Jesus delivers you. And as your standard, know that Jesus directs you. He who called you is faithful, and He will do it. Let that be our rest forever. Father, thank You again for this time in Your Word. Hopefully, Lord, we can have our minds renewed, especially as we, especially as we look at Your commandments. Though they are great, though they are perfect, You give us what we need to live a life of obedience an obedience that does not achieve righteousness, but obedience in the righteousness, in, in the righteousness that has already been given to us. Lord, give us strength. Help us to love your law. Help us to delight in your commands. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged by that when we obey, we are not somehow succumbing to a life of self-righteousness, but we are seeing the very powerful, the, the very power of the gospel at work in our lives. And that you would be glorified by that. That you'd be honored in all things. And that we can confidently rest in the fact that you have charted this path. That you're, that our King, our Lord, our Savior Jesus has walked this path and has given us a perfect example to follow. And though we may falter, we definitely will at times. Sometimes, sometimes very badly. And we will make a mess of things. And we may bring reproach to your name. You are still there, Lord, walking with us, representing us, helping us, strengthening us. We can rest in the fact that as your Son is our High Priest, He is also the one who died for us. Once for all, once for all, to bring satisfaction to your divine justice. That we no longer need to fear death or condemnation, that we can rest Rest in the glorious salvation that you so abundantly supply. So may our hearts uh, be thankful and may our, continue, our continued worship be a clear reflection of that. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.